This is Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics, the law, and a lot of things in between. I'm Jessica Levinson, a professor at Loyola Law School. I'm joined today by the show's co-host, Joe Armstrong, and hot off the bench, hot off of oral arguments, we are going to be talking about the big Second Amendment case that the court is hearing this term. Joe, give us some of the details, and then we'll kind of dive in, hopefully explain to everybody exactly what happened during oral arguments this week. Hello, Jessica. It is hot button season here on Passing Judgment. We have been closely following the fate of abortion rights with the Supreme Court cases out of Texas and Mississippi. And today we've got an episode on another lightning rod topic that has come before the court. And as you said, that's gun rights. On Wednesday of this week, the court heard about two hours of oral arguments about the constitutionality of a New York law that restricts concealed carry permits. This case made it before the court after Rensselaer County residents Robert Nash and Brandon Koch. Now, just a quick note there. I did do some due diligence and watched several videos trying to figure out how Mr. Koch pronounces his last name. We're going to go with Koch. Were denied permits to carry concealed weapons for self-defense by New York State Supreme Court Justice Richard McNally in 2016. Subsequently, Nash, Koch, and the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association sued Justice McNally as well as the state police in New York. In 2018, a U.S. district judge tossed the case and an appeal followed. And that makes this the first big Second Amendment case to land before the court in over a decade. So, Jessica, the big question here, what is the legal issue here? Well, as you said, it's basically, is this New York law constitutional or not? So let's talk about the details of the New York law a little bit more. It requires residents to obtain a concealed carry permit if they want to carry concealed handguns in public, meaning outside of the home. So the previous case, which we'll talk about more in a minute, dealt more with what can you do in your home? Can you own a gun outside of your house? We're in public. And New York says that this permit requires a showing that the people who are applying have a great need for the license and that they face, quote, a special or unique danger to their life. So New York explains that this law requires more than you just walking in and saying, I need this for self-defense, that that would be too, quote, speculative here. And so instead, what New York requires is that you have quote, an actual and articulable self-defense need. Obviously, that's a higher standard than just being able to walk in and say, I need it for self-defense. And this also allows the government to have some discretion, say like, well, I don't know, have you proved it to me enough? So that's the specific issue is, is this law constitutional? I mean, in its broadest sense, Joe, we can think about this case as basically asking you know, how does the Second Amendment apply to carrying guns in public? Okay, so those are the particulars, but what are the main arguments from each side here? So the plaintiffs here are, as you said, two people who were denied licenses to carry concealed handguns anywhere in public for self-defense. And the government, New York here, said you didn't establish a special need for self-defense. These are people who do have licenses to carry guns for hunting and target practice only, but they wanted to say, look, we can carry a gun anytime, anywhere in public. New York said, no, you can't. They said that denial infringes on our Second Amendment rights. And New York, not surprisingly, says... 
look, we have the power to do this. Obviously, I mean, Joe, we've talked about this a lot on the podcast, but obviously this is something where there are significant health and safety concerns when we're talking about a potential proliferation of guns in many major counties and cities throughout the country. And New York says, you know, not only are there health and safety concerns, but they make an argument that I think is very smart when you have a conservative Supreme Court. They say there's a strong tradition of putting limits on carrying guns in public. So they're trying to say to the justices, you can use your conservative legal interpretation and still get to a result that favors us. You can still look at the text and history and tradition, and you can do that in a conservative, again, legal manner, a conservative legal ideology, and we will still win. So basically, those are the two arguments. Okay, and let's remember that the Second Amendment itself is rather short. It reads like this. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Now, as short as it is, Americans have been interpreting and reinterpreting and arguing about those 27 words since 1791. So all of that said, Jessica, what is the precedent here? So the precedent here, we've been talking about the fact that the court really hasn't heard a big Supreme Court case since 2008, and that was the court's Heller decision. It was written by Justice Scalia. It was a five to four decision. It's really hard for me to explain how important that decision was because the court found specifically that there is an individual right to bear arms, that this isn't something that it's just a right for the quote unquote militia. It's a right for each individual. And that case was about an individual's right to keep and bear arms in their home for self-defense, as we talked about, that that precedent case was about what happens in your home. And I do also think it's important to point out, because a lot of people just kind of cite to Heller, very understandably, it's a 2008 decision. Again, Justice Scalia writes for a very divided court, a five to four court, and they say, oh, that's just... Justice Scalia saying no regulations on gun ownership. And he actually specifically says, no, some gun regulation is okay. And I'll just briefly read. He says, nothing in our opinion should be taken to cast doubt on longstanding prohibitions on the possession of firearms by felons and the mentally ill or laws forbidding the carrying of firearms in sensitive places, such as schools and government buildings, or laws imposing conditions and qualifications on the commercial sale of arms. So he does understand here that the Second Amendment is not an absolute right. And I also think what's interesting is that he's placing those restrictions in his conservative legal ideology. Again, he's saying, you know, longstanding prohibitions. That's basically speak for what it's been part of our Constitution and part of our understanding of the Constitution for a long time. This decision is not trying to undermine those particular laws. All right. So we all know that the court's position can change over time. So what is different about the court in 2021 as opposed to 2008 in that last decision? Well, it's a more conservative court than the court that made the decision in Heller. And I think, 
you know, that's a lot of the reason why the court decided to take up the case now and why a lot of people are really honestly worried about their safety and what the court will do and how much it will expand Second Amendment rights. And I know we'll talk more, we'll do kind of forecasting in a moment, but what specifically changed? Justice Scalia passed away in 2016. Justice Neil Gorsuch filled his seat. Justice Kennedy retired. Justice Kavanaugh, his former clerk, filled his seat. And Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away in September of 2020. Justice Barrett filled that seat. All of those arguably are either kind of even swaps. I think Scalia to Gorsuch in some ways is the same level of conservative. But Kennedy to Kavanaugh, Justice Ginsburg to Justice Barrett, those all move us to being either um, a bit or significantly more conservative. All right. So let's remember that there aren't headhunters out drumming up cases and drumming up business for the Supreme Court. The court can only decide on cases that are appealed to them and that at least four members of the case decide to hear at all. So have the conservative members of the court just been waiting around for a Second Amendment case to come before them? Yes. So there are some conservative members of the court who have publicly said, why aren't we taking Second Amendment cases? And in fact, in 2017, Justice Clarence Thomas, who I think has really been leading the kind of drumbeat of we need to take more Second Amendment cases. And what's interesting is you see some of his clerks who have now become judges adopting similar language in their opinions, I believe, saying we need to take more of these cases. But in 2017, Justice Clarence Thomas, joined by Justice Gorsuch, wrote that they had detected, quote, a distressing trend the treatment of the Second Amendment as a disfavored right. And I'll read what he said a little bit more. He said, For those of us who work in marbled halls, guarded constantly by a vigilant and dedicated police force, the guarantees of the Second Amendment might seem antiquated and superfluous, but the framers made a clear choice. They reserved to all Americans the right to bear arms for self-defense. So he really has been saying for a while now, What's wrong, everybody? We need to take more Second Amendment cases. So as you said, Kennedy retired in 2018. Now, given that the court had a conservative 5-4 majority at that time, why do you think it took so long for another Second Amendment case to make it before the court? Well, I think this exactly picks up on what we were just talking about. Justice Clarence Thomas, I think, understanding look, the court is conservative. You know, why are we waiting here? And the court, in fact, turned down, I believe, almost a dozen appeals in Second Amendment cases in recent years. And my suspicion and the suspicion of people who follow the Supreme Court, like I try to, is that they didn't think that they could get Chief Justice John Roberts to vote in a manner that would be expansive of Second Amendment rights, meaning voting against a state regulation and in favor of those challenging that regulation. But when Justice Barrett replaced Justice Ginsburg, you don't need the chief justice anymore. And Joe, that's something that we've talked about, that this is a court that's now so conservative that you can basically throw up your hands if you're conservative and say, well, the chief justice might not vote with us, then he doesn't vote with us, but we'll probably get five members anyway. So I think that might be one explanation for what the change is, that it takes four members to decide to take a case and that those four members weren't sure that there was a case that they wanted to take with, you know, a quote unquote good outcome, meaning a pro Second Amendment outcome, um, really until 
Justice Barrett was on the bench. And they might have been waiting for the right type of vehicle. These are two plaintiffs where if you want to expand Second Amendment rights, they're good plaintiffs. They're people who have passed security checks, passed, you know, they've gone through all their training. They already have um, permits to carry guns for certain purposes. And here they're saying, like, come on, New York, we're not who you're worried about here. So they also, I think in some ways, you know, they wait for the proper vehicle to expand rights when they want to do that. Okay, so it's time to do some reading of those tea leaves, Jessica. Does that mean, do you think that the court's thinking on Second Amendment questions has now changed? So I think what you heard the conservative justices saying is that they need to rethink the approach to restrictions on guns. And right now, lower courts are really using more of a balancing test. And Justices Barrett and Kavanaugh, at least when they were lower court judges, I believe, said, let's try and rely more on text, history, tradition instead of this balancing test. When that idea was brought up in oral arguments, I think you heard other conservative justices like Justice Thomas and Justice Gorsuch really agree with that. Now, this sounds kind of abstract. What does this mean in practice? In practice, it means that more gun restrictions would be struck down. And I think for a lot of people, um, that's a scary prospect. I think for a lot of people, they know that, you know, this sounds kind of academic of, are we going to use a balancing test? or Are we going to use a test that looks more at text, history, tradition? But of course, really um, huge real world impact here. And the difference between those tests could be the difference between thousands of guns on the street. Okay, so now let's move to the future. So, Jessica, what does it look like will happen after now that we've heard these oral arguments? So I think the consensus is, and I agree, that it looks like the court is going to rule in favor of the plaintiffs here, those who are challenging the law, those who were denied the permits. And that would mean that the court would strike down part of or all of New York's restriction here and would expand Second Amendment rights. When you heard the justices kind of struggling with these issues and oral arguments, I think what they were saying is that regulation is okay in certain places. Like, that's why I read from that quote from um, Justice Scalia in his 2008 decision in Heller, where, you know, maybe it's schools, maybe it's subways, maybe it's government buildings, but New York's law just goes too far. So I think one of the big things that we need to look at here is when, and I suspect it's when, the court strikes down New York's law, how does it write the decision? Is it just you can never do this or you can't do this in these circumstances or it's just too broad, go back and try again? But it will be really important to see how much leeway the court continues to give states. So what about those other states? What about fallout elsewhere if the court rules in favor of those challenging this New York law? What happens to firearms laws in other states? So there are similar laws in California, Hawaii, Maryland, Massachusetts, New Jersey, and Rhode Island that I think would also fail. Again, caveat depending on how the court writes its opinion, but it's hard to see how New York's law would be struck down, but those laws would be able to stand. Um, now, it look, that doesn't sound like that many states, but those include some really, really heavily populated areas. And the estimates I saw are that about 25% of the nation's population lives in one of those states. So 
that would have a huge impact. I saw in some of the amicus briefs that we're talking about the difference between hundreds of guns, thousands of guns on the street, and tens of thousands of guns on the street in certain areas. So again, a huge real world impact when it comes to this case. And I think that a lot of us will be watching just to, again, to look at how the court writes this opinion, how much space it continues to give states to try and regulate guns being carried in public. So perhaps good news if you are someone who wants to have a gun or more guns, perhaps bad news for those of us who want more gun safety and legislation that goes hand in hand with that. But either way, thank you, Jessica, for talking about this. We will keep an eye on this particular outcome. Thank you, Joe. This is really busy few weeks of the Supreme Court. Two more big cases next week that we'll talk about and we'll also bring some political news back into the fray. So thank you, Joe. It is my pleasure. You can find Jessica on Twitter and Instagram at Levinson Jessica. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at In-Depth Day. You can find our show, Passing Judgment. I hope you check it out on Twitter at Pass Judgment Pod, also on Instagram at Passing Judgment Pod. As I like to say, as always, thank you so very much for listening and have a great day. <laughs>